Well, hey, good morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus. I want us to continue to worship together, to be the church assembled, gathered, where we can now agree with one another and pray together. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to participate by hearing, agreeing, and affirming as we continue to worship all the things that we have said and sung corporately that we agree with that we would also now pray together and approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. So let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that we have been able to gather together in this place in this way. The presence of your spirit in and among your people. Thank you for the provision of your word. Father, as we continue to declare your excellencies of who you are, what you have done, who you have declared us to be. We also recognize there are struggles, there are seasons of suffering, there's fear, uncertainty, doubt, and Father, we know that you are aware of all of it. We also know, Father, that each of us truck in all sorts of things that are outside the character of your son, Jesus. And so now, Father, as we continue to, to sit under the prophetic utterance, the teaching of your word, would you, by your spirit present, would you remind us, would you reveal to us any of the things that we're carrying around that are preventing us from hearing from you clearly and correctly? Would you convict us of sin? Would you remind us of all the ways we fail to act in apathy? Would you remind us of the ways we act out in anger or assault, verbally, physically, emotionally, relationally? Would you remind us of our tendencies to adulterous feelings and attitudes? Would you remind us of our tendency to abandon what you've called us to? And there, right there, Father, as we are mindful of all the ways that we fall short of the character of your son, Jesus, would you remind us of the gospel, that none of what we do or say or think is beyond your grace, and it changes nothing about how you feel about us and how you love us, how you pursue us, how you are for us. And so would you give us the courage and the clarity to heave all of those things, all of those thoughts, words, and deeds at the foot of the cross Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking all of that, for becoming all of that, for dying, and yet you rose out of all of that. And so in the same way, Father, would you remind us of the gospel, the good news of what you've done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And as clean, pure vessels, would you ready us to hear a challenging passage, a difficult text, God, that is part of your inspired and inerrant word. And so I pray for wisdom and communication that all of us would hear from you. So we pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in a little sermon series this spring in the little book of 2 Thessalonians. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Thessalonians. If you can't find it quick and easy, find the book of Hebrews, turn left, you'll be there in no time. We started 1 Thessalonians early this spring. We went through Easter. Now we're walking through 2 Thessalonians. We will be in chapter 2 this morning. Lord willing, we'll tackle chapter 2 this morning and hopefully 
we will uh, address chapter 3 next week. I wonder, when was the last time someone had to blurt out in your general direction or in your face, hold on tight? Maybe it's been a while. Hold on tightly. Hold on. Just, just, just stand there and hold on. Maybe you were on, uh, I don't know, an international flight, and maybe the plane landed and they loaded you on one of those little buses, you know, the kind that no seats, no seat belts, and not enough handles, and they're somehow easy, they're able to make turns on the tarmac at about 70 miles an hour, and they say, stand still and hold tight. You're like, face in glass, and some neighbor behind you didn't hold on, and so he's now on your backpack. That kind of thing. Maybe I'm just hypothetically talking about those kinds of things. When's the last time someone told you to hold on, to hold on tightly? I remember vividly, it's been a number of years now, a couple decades, some friends of ours in Houston uh, convinced me to go on a hiking trip in Peru. Sounds bougie, it wasn't. They told me all these things about the train and how they're going to do this in the train and sounded fine to me, and you may not know this, I, I don't pay attention a lot. And so they were talking about uh, all the different things and how the, you know, the, the train this and the train that. and We pack up and we fly to Peru, and they started asking me, hey, wh- where's all your, your hiking gear? I was like, hiking gear? What are y'all talking about? We're taking the train. <laughs> they said, no, you idiot. We've been training for like two months. Have you not been training? I was like, you don't need training to ride a train. You, that's not, no, the na- no, you just, you just, no, we're hiking. I said, what do you mean we're hiking? For how long? They said, four nights. I was like, whoa, 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 nights? What do you mean nights? I said, yeah, we're hiking on the trail, and then we sleep in tents on the mountain. I'm like, what is happening? I had no idea. So I'm ill-equipped, and we begin hiking. And we climb, and we climb, and we climb. We're in the Peruvian Andes, and finally, we find ourselves on about the third day of this hike, after having sleep, being asleep on jagged rocks, we find ourselves going through at about 15,000 feet in elevation, and we're going over a place called, now this should have been a tip-off. It's called Dead Woman's Pass. Now that's just going to, that's bad marketing, even in Peru. We're going over Dead Woman's Pass, and it's at 15,000 feet, and this massive, incredible storm whips up, and it feels like it's going to blow us clean off the mountain. I'm freaked out. Our other guys are starting to kind of freak out. We're thinking, well, this is the day. This is finally the day when all of my stupidity, all of my error, all of my sin catches up, and this is when God finally gets me, and he blows me off the side of the mountain, and I hit the earth below, and I experience rapid disassembly. This is it. This is it. But Agosto, Agosto was our guide, and he was unfazed. You see, Agosto, he had been there many, many times. He wasn't worried. He would just tell us, stand firm, hold on. And he also had a Coke bottle. It was not full of Coke. I don't know what was in there, but it was yellow, and it had pieces of corn floating in it. It was nasty. And he was unfazed. He said, just stand firm and hold tight. And sure enough, there was a cable that had been bolted into the wall, and we kept our balance, and we held on this narrow little ridge, and we held on to this cable, and we let the storm pass through. Hold on. Stand firm. Stand firm. Hold on. Sometimes we need to go through those kinds of seasons and stretches in our life because it's good for us. It reminds us that this life is not all that there is and our convenience and comfort is not all that there is. And sometimes our God leads us and loves us and guides us and guards us through those kinds of seasons. And it's good for us. Sometimes our enemies always trying to remind us that when we're in hard times, that God's out to get us, or this is finally comeuppance. But then the gospel comes along and says, no, no, no. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear that again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You might be experiencing chastisement or discipline or refinement or polishing or equipping or being made fit for God's kingdom, but there is no condemnation. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ. Christ became our condemnation so that we would be redeemed to him and to one another. It's utterly huge. Christ experienced that day on our behalf. And so, our big idea for the morning is quite simply, from the illustration, stand firm and hold on. Stand firm and hold on. It comes directly from this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the entire chapter all the way through. I'll make a couple quick comments, and then we'll unpack it, and we'll see if we can apply it. Now, as we're starting 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I should tell you, with fear and trembling, it is probably one of the most hotly debated chapters in all of the New Testament. There's teaching in 2 Thessalonians 2 that is covered nowhere else in Scripture. And so it's, it's a difficult passage to understand in some ways. It's sort of uh, uh, upper graduate level in terms of concept and theology and doctrine, but it's okay. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. We're going to walk through it. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on it. We're not going to. It's just going to feel that way. Okay? We're going to talk through some of this stuff. And because Paul is responding to some of their questions, we find that we come into this paragraph on the back half of a conversation. And we miss the first half of the conversation. God's not shocked by that. He's not apologizing for that. But we need to understand that we've missed the first half of the conversation. Paul is responding to some things. And so we have to try to figure out and discern and glean what's happening. And because of that, we cannot be dogmatic and we cannot divide over these things. We don't ball up our fists and throw them at people's faces if they disagree with us about any of these concepts. So I'm saying that to myself as well as to one another. Keep that in mind. This will all seem to make sense here in a moment, I hope. 2 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. That's a key word. Remember that for later, alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So I want you to hear this as we continue to read on. Paul has gotten a report that they think they've missed the rapture and that they're living through the day of the Lord. Or he's gotten a report that they think there is no rapture and they're now experiencing God's condemnation. You kind of have to understand what's going on here. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. And then we got three separate criteria for the day of the Lord to usher in. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with, still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. They know. I don't know. Do you know? We'll talk about it. Because he had apparently told them. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is God's word. Now, I say that because I want to point out and remind us, it is God's word, even though it is a personal letter from a person to some people at a period in a place for a purpose. Paul was writing a letter to some people, and it is God's word, and he knew that he was writing God's word because he was an apostle. He was, the term is, inscripturating. Paul was not writing to you, he was not writing to me, but what he was writing to the Thessalonians has immediate bearing on us. What was going on in Thessalonica? Well, they were suffering. They were experiencing persecution, opposition. They were having all kinds of questions. They were a brand new church. Less than four months old is this new church, the second church in Europe, the second church in Western civilization. You remember the story. We're in Acts chapter 16. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's trying to go to Ephesus, the cultural, economic power and the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. The Spirit of God says no. I got bigger plans, Paul. Paul says, no problem. I'll go north to Bithynia. Spirit of Jesus says, no, Paul. You're trying to be regional. I'm going international. A man from Macedonia comes to Paul in a vision and says, please come over here. Paul gets in a boat. He goes over to Philippi. The first church in Europe is planted. He leaves Philippi. He goes through Amphipolis and Apollonia. He goes to Thessalonica. He reasons in the synagogue, that's important, that Jesus is the Christ and that all the Old Testament scriptures that were pointing toward the Messiah were Jesus. He reasons and he proves. They don't like it very much, and so he's only there in Thessalonica three and a half weeks. He gets run out of town. He goes to Berea. The Thessalonican Jews travel. They run him out of Berea. He goes to Athens. He gives a famous talk there. He goes down to Corinth where he sits for 18 months. And Paul is desperate to have a conversation and a connection with the people in Thessalonica. He feels like he's been orphaned away from them, but God had a plan. Paul, I've got you on ice right now. You're going to sit in Corinth for 18 months, and I'm going to rehab you through some people named Priscilla and Aquila. But Paul's on pins and needles. What's going on in Thessalonica? What's going on there? And so he sends Timothy to find out how they're doing. He comes back, gives a report. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Only about four months later, he gets another report. An anonymous person comes in and says, hey, they've got more questions. They, they understood your letter. That's great and that's helpful, but it produced a whole lot more questions because here's the deal, Paul. Some of them are dying. It's a small church. It's only four months old. Some of them are being dragged away and carted off to the arena. Some of their daughters and wives are being horribly murdered and ghastly things are happening. And they're thinking, okay, are they wrong? Did they miss it? Did they misunderstand? They're, they're not real sure they understand how life works. If we believe the gospel, why are bad things happening to us? You ever been there? You ever been there? Of course you have. 
in some way. And if you haven't, surprise, it's coming. And so for that, we want to be proactively prepared, edified and equipped with the truth of God's word to know how we are to deal with the life in which we live. Now, 2 Thessalonians, pretty quick and efficient little letter. It's three chapters. The first chapter is all about commendation, where Paul encourages them. He says, you guys are doing so great. You are a growing church. You have genuine converts. You have increasing faith. You have growing love. You are persevering in hope. And I know that it hurts, and I know that it's hard, but relief is coming. And make no mistake, those who oppose you, retribution is coming. But I want you in the midst of that to be a people who pray. But I want you to pray the right things for the right reason. Chapter 1 is all about commendation. I'm so proud of you guys, Paul says. Chapter 2 is about clarification. They didn't understand some things. They needed to have some things clarified. And, and, and so Paul spends the entire chapter explaining some things that we wish he would have spent more time, but he apparently had already spent time with them in person. Chapter 3 is about a correction. When I say correction, I mean in the get out of bed, boy kind of correction. Chapter 1, commendation. Chapter 2, clarification. Chapter 3, correction. So we're going to spend some time this morning looking through this clarification. Back to chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, you might hear that and go, well, why doesn't he just say the words that I want him to say? He's talking about the rapture here. And I know you may be, but why didn't he just say rapture? And the answer is because he already had. Paul never tries to make an argument that he's not trying to make. He'd already talked about the rapture in his first letter in chapter 4. So he's just referring back to it. And you're thinking, but it would be so much easier if he would have just said, I understand, that's not his point. So let's not try to make him say things that he's not trying to say. They have that letter with them. And so he's talking about the parousia. Last week we talked about when we see the word parousia in Greek, it always means the coming of Christ to gather his people. It's always a blessing. It's always a good thing. Always concerning the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered. That word gathered is synagogue. It's where we get our word for synagogue. Jesus is coming to synagogue to gather his people. That's a good thing. I, I hear people even today in the 21st century say, oh, I'm not so sure I want to see Jesus because I've got sin in my life. Yeah, huh? You want to see the God-man. You want to see the death-proof king. That, that sense of, I'm not sure I'm ready to see Jesus, unless you're an unbeliever, you want to see him. That is the fuel in your furnace to keep you going day by day. So it says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, let to, uh, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. They were alarmed. They were beginning to freak out and wonder, oh my gosh, are we in the day of the Lord? Has the day of the Lord begun? Is, it, is, it, is the judgment being poured out? And Paul wants to tell them very, very quickly and cleverly, no, there is a deception against you. We don't know how, we don't know what. Apparently somebody forged a letter and said it was from Paul and was trying to confuse them. Probably came from one of the people in the synagogue there in Thessalonica. Apparently some false teachers had come in and were trying to tell them, hey, now you've really messed up. You've got to try harder to be better. Paul says, don't listen to anything else, whether it's a false letter or it's a false teacher or maybe even a deceptive spirit is telling you that you are under God's judgment. You are not. What's Paul doing? He's referring to the words of Jesus. Way back in the Gospel of Mark, Mark records that Jesus tells his own disciples this. He says, 
And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Paul uses the same word alarmed here in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Don't be alarmed. The word is throeo. It's where we get our word for throws. I was in the throes of panic. I was in the throes of anguish. Is come from Greek word. I don't want you in the throes of worry, of angst, of fear. I don't want you there. Because they were. And by the way, Christian, 21st century, sometimes we operate in the construct of fear. Well, Paul says, I don't want you to operate there. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord has not come. I've already told you about this, but why would they think that it might have already begun? Because they understood that there's been a history through humanity of opposition and bad things coming. We say this all the time around here. There's God, there's people, and so there's sin, and so there's judgment, but there's a Savior. And they were wondering, are we in one of those cycles of judgment? Is that what's going on? Perhaps. How does Paul and also the Apostle John and others say that these people should already know these things? Because they were taught so well, biblically. We always know that there is this sense that that there's always been satanic and enemy opposition and oppression. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, of course, we have a serpent that deceives Eve and Adam and says, God's holding out on you, and the fall happens. Sin is introduced into the world, and it goes viral. Genesis chapter 6, the plan of the enemy. Somehow the minions, the wicked angels of Satan, somehow cohabit with earth chicks. I don't know what that's like, worst frat party ever. And there's this horrible breed of unholy beings that respond to the Nephilim. And God says, no, no, that is right out. And so we have the flood in Genesis 6. There's always been this this, uh, attempt to oppose the perfect plan of God. In Exodus, we have the attempt by Pharaoh to slaughter all the male children to try to stop the plan and the purpose of God. All through the histories, the book of Chronicles, several times, again and again, the promise seems to cling to one little fragile life. All this treachery and despair, and yet God works his plan perfectly straight on through. The book of Esther, the king issues a decree for all Jews to be annihilated, one of the first holocausts, and God finds a way to deliver and to preserve. A guy named Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period, 121 B.C., he slaughters a pig and sprinkles blood in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Satan's always been raising people up to try to to, uh, oppose and to thwart the plan of God. Herod, in the time of Jesus, attempted to kill the Messiah and all the male children around the area of Bethlehem. Satan himself, during Jesus' earthly ministry, tried to tempt Christ away from the cross. So yes, The spirit uh, or the agenda of an antichrist, a man of lawlessness, has always been around for a long time. But don't be confused. Thessalonican people, East Texan people in 21st century, this day is not that day. That day, the day of the Lord, is a very specific scriptural technical term. And it's all over the Old Testament. Now, why am I about to make a big deal about this? Because there are entire denominations, large mainline denominations that will teach emphatically and without apology that we are currently living and existing in the day of the Lord. That we are currently in a tribulation period. 
That's very bad news, the way we understand what the tribulation period actually is. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks walking through Daniel 9, and I can tell you and show you from Daniel chapter 9, that is not true. It is impossible, and yet that is a majority opinion. So I want to show you, just walking through some very quick Old Testament passages, how the day of the Lord is a very specific technical term that always, 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 100% of the time, and always, dare I say again, always means God's judgment and vengeance. Just some quick examples. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. We are not in that day. Jeremiah 46, 10. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance. To avenge himself on his foes, the sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. Yay! For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Joel 1.15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Amos 5.20, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? <sighs> I know gas prices aren't what you want them to be. You are not in the day of the Lord. Okay? I know sometimes your TikTok doesn't work. You're not in the day of the Lord. If you were alive during the Holocaust of World War II, you would have assumed this has to be it, but it wasn't. If you were alive during the Black Death of the 14th century in Europe and the plague was killing everyone around you, you would have assumed this was the day of the Lord, but it wasn't. It will be way, way worse, unmistakable. Nobody will wonder. Zephaniah 1.15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The next to last verse in your Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before that comes. Again, there is a God, there are people, there is sin, and so there is judgment that day, but there's a Savior. The day of the Lord is judgment, but we miss it because we've been judged already. Don't you remember when the full, unmitigated wrath of God was poured down on you at the cross? Don't you remember? Oh, wait. You weren't there. But in the mind of God, you were. And that's the gospel. All judgment, vengeance, and condemnation was poured out on him on our behalf. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 5, you're not children of the night that will go through judgment. You are children of the light who will never face or fear God's judgment. So be reminded, whatever you're going through, it is not because God's after you. I used to have this hard conversation with my mom when I got into adulthood. I would stub my toe and she'd say, hmm, God used to wait a while, but now he just gets you right away. Like, mom, that's terrible theology. And I hope she hears this. It's bad theology. No, he's not out to get me. He loves me. He's for me. He sees me. He knows what I'm going in. And he might be chastising me to polish and refine me and make me fit for his kingdom. But it is no condemnation, no judgment, no vengeance. Now listen, what's interesting to me is the church that Paul's writing this letter to is only about four months old when he writes this. That means that while he was with them for three and a half weeks, a lot of the time that he spent with them was teaching this deep stuff of eschatology, meaning the study of the end times. I hear people all the time going, oh, come on, please, please don't bore the church with prophecy and end times stuff. It's so, oh, so boring. I didn't write it. 
And very early on in the church at Thessalonica, Paul spends an enormous amount of time because we have to have hope. We don't just guess or wonder or surmise. We are to know and understand. So let me give you five different ways that we are to apply this. That's right, five points. You always suggest, you always thought I'm a five-pointer. I'm a five-pointer, but not like you think. Five quick points on how we take away from this passage. How are we to be encouraged? Number one, it goes like this. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived in any way or by anyone. You read the book, The Shack, and you loved it. You watched the movie. Tremendous. Don't be deceived by a clever screenplay and good movie production, by some other podcast or some other anything. Don't be deceived by anyone, by anyone or anything. Why? Because deception always leads to fear. And fear makes us do dumb things. Deception always leads to fear. Fear makes us stupid. One of my favorite authors, Frank Herbert, wrote the Dune series. Fear is the mind killer. And it begins to happen when we are deceived. Paul says in Ephesians, we must must no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Do not be deceived so that you may be pure, Jesus is coming. So that you may be blameless, Jesus is coming. So that you might have joy, Jesus is coming. We do not do theology based on our circumstances. We do theology illumined by the Spirit, surrounded by the people, centered on the Word. This is how we come to know what is true. There is this whole section where Paul is going to talk about the man of lawlessness. Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes. Not a rebellion. This is the rebellion, the apostasy. It's not just when some denomination decides to have a vote about some cultural issue. No. This is the church all over the world simultaneously revokes sound doctrine of who Messiah is. That hasn't happened. Don't be fearing that you're in the day of the Lord. You are not. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Your translation might say the son of perdition. It will not come. Now, why does Paul say it this way? Well, about 10 years earlier, a crazy Roman emperor named Gaius Caligula. Now, he was crazy. He did, in fact, desecrate the temple and he sat down in the temple and declared himself God. But he was murdered before things got really out of hand, or things would have gotten really out of hand. But they knew that image. And Paul says, look, things may be bad, but that hasn't happened. It certainly hasn't happened again with any staying power. Don't be deceived. That guy's going to be revealed, but it's not him, and it wasn't that. This antichrist, this son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't be deceived. Don't be thinking, well, I didn't vote for that guy. He must be the Antichrist. No! Maybe a bad policy is here or there. Not the Antichrist. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was with you still, I told you these things? So that's the second point. First is, don't be deceived. Secondly, don't be forgetful. Now, you might nuance these. Don't be deceived means know the truth. Don't be forgetful. You could nuance that and say, remember Preach little sermons to your soul to be reminded so that you remember. Don't you remember? Well, no. That's why we don't get a detailed writing of a lot of this is Paul has already told them verbally. 
Remember, you can't be in the day of the Lord. The apostasy has not happened. The apostasy is a very specific thing that happens globally. The rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, can happen in any moment, snap of a finger, done. The rapture can happen in any moment. The day of the Lord cannot. The day of the Lord, some things must occur first, one of which is the rapture, one of which is the revealing of this man of lawlessness. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things, verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Uh, no, actually, I, I don't know. Paul told them, he doesn't tell us. And there's about eight different theories of what is holding back the revealing of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Some people think, well, it's all human government. <laughs> because government would never, ever have anybody actually sin. Can't be government. Can't be the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, unless you've not heard, no longer exists. There's all these different thoughts. What is it? Well, there's some interesting grammar that Paul uses. At one point, he uses the thing that holds back the man of lawlessness. And at some point, he'll say, he that holds back the man of lawlessness. So the best prevailing thought, and I think this is correct, and I'm happy to have a conversation with you if you'd like to disagree. What restrains the man of lawlessness is the Holy Spirit indwelling the church. Sometimes it's called the thing, which is the church. Sometimes it's called him, the person, which is the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit in the church that God presently uses all over the world, in all parts of our globe, to restrain and withstand the slings and arrows of our enemy. So Paul says, don't be deceived, don't be forgetful. And then, third point, don't be ignorant. Or as my dad would say, don't be ignorant. Why would he say that? Because I'm ignorant. But don't be. I want you to be informed. I want you to understand Understand what's going on with the Antichrist's objectives. Verse 6, you know who it is. And then verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So the day of the Lord can't happen until the restrainer is removed. We would call that a pre-tribulation rapture. We don't need to divide over this. We don't need to get upset about this. The point is, the day of the Lord will not happen until the restrainer is removed. The Holy Spirit cannot simply cease to exist. He's omnipresent. He is God. So this is where we get that idea. Verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. I love that Paul doesn't spend any time talking about the career of the man of lawlessness or his exploits or his achievements or his accomplishments. He's a very bad dude. He's the worst dude ever. He can do miraculous things. He is supernaturally energized. And Jesus shows up, and I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, but this is a paraphrase of Isaiah 30, verse 33, that his voice is like a stream of fire. This is the worst guy ever who is supernaturally energized, and Jesus just shows up, and just his appearing <laughs> obliterates, evaporates, and eradicates the worst guy ever. This is just his appearance. Paul doesn't even waste time with all the things that's going to happen. If you want that, read Revelation chapter 6 through 17. It's a page turner. That's what that guy will accomplish. And the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. 
three very important words. That's how Jesus' earthly ministry is described, power, signs, and wonders. It's how the apostles are described in the book of Acts. And so this guy is going to try to counterfeit that. That's not happening. In such a way, he'll use power and signs and wonders that the whole world will buy in that he's actually God. That hasn't happened because spirit-indwelled believers would not believe that and they won't have the opportunity to because they will be removed. Verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So let me stop there. Christ's first coming was in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4 says. His second coming will be an apocalypse, an unveiling, a global event orchestrated by God. The Antichrist's coming will be an apocalypse, an unveiling, orchestrated in the macro by God because he will rapture the church all of the things will begin to happen. This guy will be unveiled, but he will come to nothing in a matter of months. Every person to be redeemed is written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 13, Revelation 17. See, our enemy is trying to speed things along because he does not want eternity populated with the living. Did you hear that? Did you know that? Our enemy is trying to speed things along. He knows how the story ends, but he's trying to expedite God's plan. He does not want eternity peopled with the living. But have you ever thought about it this way? Every name that will ever be redeemed was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the earth. Revelation 13, Revelation 17. I may have a great, 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 great-granddaughter whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if she is, then she is his. And he will not move from his plan until she is his. Now take great comfort in that. That's the kind of God that we serve. He is sovereign. And he will hold back all the slings, arrows, and attempts of our enemy through the Spirit in the church until such time as God says, we have peopled eternity. Now that's very, very good news. So don't be deceived. Don't be forgetful. Don't be ignorant. Don't be unbelieving. Second half of verse 10. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Literally, they did not accept the love of the truth. Now Paul says something really massive here and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna just stab you with it because this is a biblical principle that is true. Rejection of the truth is not merely intellectual. It is moral. Rejection of the truth is not merely intellectual. It is moral. Why do people go to hell? They don't believe. Why don't they believe? They are unwilling. Why are they unwilling? Because they don't want to be. You have to actually love Christ more than your sin. Boom. That's what Paul is saying when he says that they did not accept the love of the truth. Back in the Gospel of John, Jesus' condemnation of the leaders of the day. At the same time, many, of, many even among the leaders believed in Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. That is a moral issue. The day of the Lord will be terrifying for unbelievers. Choose not to be. 
There is a calcification, a hardening of the heart. Paul talks about it in Romans. We see it in Exodus with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God amplified and sealed the hardening of that heart. God gives them over. And so the book of Hebrews will say, while today is still called today, do not allow your heart to be hardened. This is pressing information. I know it's a weird chapter. We don't spend a lot of time in devotionally. You don't look at Zephaniah 1.15 and Amos 5.20 all that frequently. I get it. Don't be unbelieving. In other words, be believing. In other words, continue to foster and cultivate and curate your persuasion, your convincedness. It matters. Finally, don't be insecure or be secure is the nuance. This is the, this is the, uh, the fifth point, verse 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be confident, not cocky, but be confident. Confidence is very appealing. Yes, you've got sin, and perhaps you wonder, is this because of my sin or having this bad thing happen? might just be chastisement, but it is not judgment. It is not vengeance. You and I will always have sin to deal with in our lives. It's been said in every aspect and phase of our life, there will always be some manifestation of our fallenness right up to the moment we are finally fully redeemed. So yes, we are somewhat jacked up, but don't be insecure because it's right here in the text, two reasons. We are loved, not merely tolerated, we are loved. We're his favorite. He's crazy about us. He's thinking about us. He wants to be with us. I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but it is the most important thing about you, and he loves you. Not only that, you are chosen. Yes, we are involved as well. As well. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That crushes our human pride. We choose to live like we're chosen and loved. It also produces security. That's the security of the believer. How are we transformed? How are we sanctified by this? Two ways. He tells us by the sanctification of the Spirit. He detaches me and sets me apart from my sin, and he begins the life of God in me. He transforms me by the belief in the truth. I believe, I am convinced, I am persuaded that he is the Christ. Believe it that we choose to act on it. We are summons. This is unbelievable. Here's the payoff. Here's the how come. Verse 14, we are summonsed through our gospel so that you and I may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the biggest scandals in your Bible. All of us come into this world glory hungry. We want acceptance. We want acknowledgement. We want approval. We want to get the credit for things we don't even do. We're so glory hungry. But the gospel comes along and says, I will give you fully the glory of the Lord Jesus if you believe. Your greatest fear, your greatest desire is actually given by grace. What a scandal this gospel actually is. He's called us all the while. These five points, don't forget, don't be deceived, don't be forgetful, don't be ignorant, don't be unbelieving, don't be insecure. Stand firm and hold on. You and I will go through seasons of chastisement and discipline, refining and polishing. Rethink your thinking about it. It's not because we're under God's judgment or condemnation. It's because God loves us and he is for us and he's using all the fallenness of the world to make us fit 
for his kingdom. And so let me just sort of synthesize and summarize with two quick statements. You might not love this, but this is a biblical pair of truths. Number one, condemnation. God acts in response to man's choice. Salvation. Man acts in response to God's choice. And all of us on the planet fall into one of those two camps. We are to stand firm and hold on. And just like Agosto in Peru told me what to hold on to, so does Paul in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Now, that's not traditions like cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving. No. It's the teaching of Scripture that Paul gave them verbally. The things that you've heard preached, taught, instructed in BSF, life groups, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies. Hold on to those truths that are taught scripturally. The doctrine of the Trinity is a tradition. Now, it's biblical. That word is not there, but the, the theological concept is, is biblical. It is a tradition. Hold fast to that, he says, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold fast to what you've been taught, either in a teaching or in the text. Hold fast to that stuff. Paul's prayer is our prayer, that God would comfort us regardless of what we're experiencing, but not that we would merely dangle by our fingernails through this life, but in our comfort, God would also equip us to be that comfort for someone else. That is our good work. Don't be deceived, forgetful, ignorant, unbelieving, or insecure. Instead, stand firm when things aren't going your way, and they will probably very rarely go your way, and that's okay. Stand firm Hold on to what you've been taught and to the very words of God. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a benediction that comes right out of our passage. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity to be gathered together, to have your word illumined by your spirit, that we as your people can have joy, not fearing condemnation, not wondering if this is the day of judgment, we are children of light and not of night. And Father, I would be remiss if I did not ask that if there is someone here this morning who when next they see you, it will be retribution and not relief. I pray that you would move by your spirit and usher them into belief. That they would be persuaded, convinced that your son Jesus offers freely to take away their sin and to give them righteousness. Father, we love you. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.